Welcome to Inside JMS, the stories behind the people who work at the Hank Greenspun School of Journalism and Media Studies. I'm Kevin Stoker. I'm the director of the school, and I'm here with uh, my cohort in crime, uh, Dave Norse. Great to be here, as always, my friend. And we welcome today Dr. Gregory Borchard. Greg, how you doing today? I'm good. Thanks for having me here. We're glad to have you. You know, we've been looking forward to having you, Greg. You, you know, you are around a lot, but for some reason, we I, maybe it's because you know we you're one of you're the veteran here on the faculty. You've been around a long time, and and also you're a full professor. Um, you know, one of the things that really interests me: why, what was it about the Civil War that caused you to kind of that become your obsession or passion? Which one sure. is it? Well, I've been asked this before, and I usually give the same answer. Uh, when I was a kid, I paged through my dad's collection of books. He was a history student in Minnesota at Winona State, and uh, he'd been drawn to the Civil War as a natural curiosity, I guess, and he had books about the era, along with others, too, but... Um, I had a combination of Dr. Seuss books, The Cat in the Hat, and Civil War history books. When I was a <laughs> little kid, I'd dabble in both of them. And um, it's a hard event to process for a little kid or for a grown adult, for that matter, too. People are still trying to figure out exactly what happened on all those years ago. Um, as I grew up, I first went into newspapers when I was only 10, I guess. I was starting to deliver newspapers to the neighbors and had a route that got me turned on to the press. And just, I suppose, serendipitously, the two subjects merged together. Once I got into college, I started writing for newspapers and picked this area of interest. Um, originally, it was actually ancient history. I was more intrigued by the Greeks and Romans. But in time, it all came back to the Civil War, and I can still, to this day, see some of those images from my dad's textbooks and narratives that I would page through as a kid. You know, some of it was really graphic, and some of it was just really intriguing. These people who had lived 150 or 200 years ago in black and white, and were very human and at the same time kind of mysterious. And um, I always wanted to try to tell that story. And it turned out that the newspapers themselves were the best source for being able to tell that story. And it wound up becoming a, an academic career of sorts. I've been doing this media journalism history on the 19th century for well, more than 20 years now, and there's still tons out there. That's the other beautiful thing about it. Um, you can never exhaust all of the sources and resources on this era. Every year, somebody will find a new primary source to dig through, and um, keeps it interesting, keeps it alive. That's great. Well, so you obviously grew up in uh, Minnesota then. Yes. I, I think um, I've been to Min Winona. <laughs> Winona, yeah, it's a beautiful place. Yeah. Nice area, a little cold in the winter. Well, the joke I've had for too long now is that I used to deliver the newspapers through six feet of snow 
uphill both ways. So uh, got their papers rain or shine like the post office. And, um, Minneapolis was a great place to grow up. I actually grew up in Minnetonka, which is a suburb west of Minneapolis, about 15 miles. Made famous by the Prince film where he advises his girlfriend to go get baptized in the waters of Lake Minnetonka. <laughs> right? I, <laughs> I know that area well. Still go back from time to time, have family there. Uh, so far away from the desert, I went from Minnesota to Florida to do my graduate studies. It was going from the tundra to the swamp and then from the <laughs> swamp to the desert. So I think I've got pretty much everything covered at this point. That's pretty good. You've been a student of history for a long time, Greg. What keeps you um, What keeps you motivated now? You've been looking at the Civil War, and as you mentioned, there's always a new primary source that people mm -hmm. can dig into. But what are you working on? You've been busy recently, so maybe you can tell us a little bit about what you've been working on and what's exciting you these days. Yeah, I know that's two different all these, questions. All these projects, I mean, he's had uh, several big projects. <laughs> the big projects lately have been more about the big picture. I mean, after specializing in a specific event for a long period of time, yeah, you do tend to get a little antsy or even bored with certain subjects. So I've gone from, say, focusing on just newspaper coverage of the Civil War to the 19th century, to the 20th century, the 21st century, the 18th century. Uh, the real exciting developments in 19th century history, as far as I'm concerned, are the availability of archival materials online that include images and the more time goes on, the more access we have to more and more imagery. It used to be 20 years ago. You're lucky if you could access a handful of appropriate materials in the Library of Congress's archives, but now they're popping up all over the place, all over the world even. And that's the other angle on all this. Um, we used to be really limited in our understanding of what happened in the United States to sources from the United States, but now... More and more archives are opening up in places like London and Berlin and Paris, and we're able to tap into press accounts from newspapers and media all over the world, which is mind-blowing, really. It completely changes the understanding of historians over the past 100 or 200 years in a lot of respects. But, um some cases it gets to be a little overwhelming too because no one person can do all that study and interpretation and processing and all the rest. I've relied on colleagues to help in their contributions to projects, including co-authored books. The biggest project over the past five years or so is definitely that encyclopedia of journalism that both of you and others in the school contributed to. That was a million words, more than a million words in the end. It's a four-volume piece of work that had contributions from hundreds of authors who tried to do the impossible, and that's address all of the contemporary salient issues in journalism in a single 
issue or multi-volume issue of the encyclopedia. And I was pleased, surprised, um, satisfied even that it actually happened. It happened under some pretty adverse circumstances. There was a pandemic after all. (laughs) About halfway through the development of this whole project, it would have been entirely possible to expect nobody would finish this. Um, Everything was an upheaval. The people who contributed were primarily university professors who were in the process of switching their courses online. And there was a lot of chaos and anarchy at the time. But, I mean, to the credit of everybody involved, they followed up, in a few cases with a little prodding, but for the most part on their own volition, everybody contributed and we wound up with, I think, a nice product. Um, there have been some good reviews coming in, even from people who contributed. Uh, our colleague Stephen Bates has commented. He's, wow, this is great. I'm using it in class. You know, <laughs> it's like, okay, what more do you need? Um, there's that. And now currently uh, a textbook I'm working on, it's actually a revision to a previous textbook that had been published um, A different publisher, Peter Lang, has agreed to take on the project, and uh, assuming all things go well, by this time next year, there should be a manuscript ready to go to print, which I know both of you have heard about in (laughs) one shape or another, but we'll (laughs) leave it at that. So I need to go back to the Encyclopedia Journalism for a minute. So you're... You, you did allude that it was quite quite the effort, Herculean effort, one might say, over a million words, four volumes. Greg, what in you what were you thinking when you agreed to take on this monumental task? Um, he wasn't thinking oh, maybe, and, maybe, and maybe that's what it was, but I think the enormity of this project you understated and i need i i want to make sure that for everybody who's listening even if it's just for the people in this room we have to give credit where credit is due that was a huge project that you undertook and very difficult circumstances pandemic notwithstanding Mm -hmm. um but would love to hear kind of how in your in the trajectory of your career why did that make sense at the particular time? I think I think that would be very enlightening. Well, sure. Uh, I had picked up an editorship of the journal Journalism History before anybody at Sage approached me about this project, and the journal itself was quite a feat. I'm just going through a major transition with the publishers there, getting everything online, um, keeping all the contributors on board, and self-publishing. It was a strange scenario in which the editor had to put together the actual design and layout and mailing list and everything associated with the journal itself. I think, as my understanding, that the people at Sage recognized my name from journalism history as an editor who was actually able to keep that production intact. And they approached me with this idea of putting together the second edition of the Encyclopedia Journalism. The first edition had come out in 2008, so it was about 10 years lag time. Uh, 
And they were pretty blunt. They didn't know exactly how it was going to turn out themselves. At the time, it was just an idea. And as you know, journalism and media change all the time. Um, There was some discussion as to whether or not they would even bother with uh, second edition. Because here we are, what, a year, two years later, I'm willing to bet some of the contents in the second edition are already in need of updating. There was a sense that, okay, if we do this, we're going to have to be kind of organic in the process and just see where it leads us. But uh, I was contacted initially by an acquisitions editor who wanted to see if I was interested in doing it. She didn't really have very specific guidelines or an outcome in mind at the time. Um, We had to discuss the direction that the second edition would go that would make it different from the first edition and decided we'd come up with different general categories and also a blueprint for the geography involved. I think actually in hindsight, out of all of the nuances to the encyclopedia, the geographical dimensions was probably the most challenging to determine. It wasn't supposed to be about the United States exclusively. It was supposed to include areas around the world that readers around the world would take interest in. So in order to determine our target audience, we had to go into rankings of populations globally to figure out where the press was most widely used in certain areas. And we came up with a listing of the 10 most populated centers on the planet, which is subject to change as well. I mean, some cities grow and others lose populations. But from there, we came up with geographical designations that would include certain subjects for certain readers um, based on, I believe it was six geographical areas. I'd have to double check on that. But In other words, um, a lot of this did not happen overnight. It took a good year or more of planning to figure out how we were going to execute this whole project. And once it did, to Sage's credit, those people are very professional in the way they administer projects. This is something they'd done before on other projects. They had correspondence lined up already. Um, they had ways of determining word counts and which materials needed revision for updates and all that. Fortunately for me, um, I did not have to go in and scour word for word a million words to determine if it was publishable or not. My job was primarily to screen the materials and find out if the authors had followed their instructions appropriately. And then there were people in production who would make sure that the styles were correct, that everybody used um, citations appropriately. Uh, It was a multi-tiered process. It was very much collaborative. Yes, my name does show up on the front cover, but um, ultimately they needed a name on the cover. (laughs) And everybody else that contributed to it included 
the people who wrote the individual articles and the editors and the production assistants, um, there was a lot that went into the project that was actually out of my hands to a large extent. Well, and you've also, in the meantime, published two uh, second editions or of previous books. Right. Plus, to before the encyclopedia, you finished up that textbook on right. uh, history, journalism history textbook. Yeah, without blowing my horn too much here, I, I did get some advice long ago from mentors back in Florida at grad school. Leonard Tipton, ring a bell. And yeah. Good guy. Love the guy. He's still around. He's helpful. Um, he always had this really wise, sage advice on how to do things correctly, but at the same time enjoy it too. Um, long ago, the strategy was to compile as much material as possible in a database and just scour everything you could get your hands on pull it into this massive library of archives, primary sources, and all the rest. Forget about publishing it right away. I mean, that's just putting the horse before the carrot. You just got to get this stuff ready to go. And that was my story here at UNLV for the first five years or so. It was kind of frustrating, actually, because I'd send stuff out for publication and get rejected or kicked back for presentation at conferences and all the rest of it. What am I doing? What am I doing wrong? You know, I'm ready to throw in the towel and all the rest. But the whole process was building up that pool of information so that in time... You get to learn the craft of getting published and you get feedback from reviewers and all the rest. And by the time my application for tenure was coming up, I had gotten the system down through trial and error and experience rejections and all so that it almost became an assembly line. I'm able to crank this stuff out <laughs> left and right and um, start to see these publications pile up. It did take time. But once you know, everything started to fall in place, yeah, the, the books and the journal articles and the encyclopedias and all the rest, they just kind of flowed out naturally. And it's satisfying. It's made life easier, too, to not have to worry about this stuff so much and bang your head on the wall as if it's like a futile enterprise or something. But it does take time, especially with historical studies, I think. That's the thing that most people, including some administrators, not you, Kevin, but some administrators don't get it, that it will take years in some cases to get just a simple journal article published, I mean, let alone a book and all the rest. You know, and, and there are certain challenges for those who choose history, and uh, you've been able to, to win at that game. I, I guess I, I'm going to ask you... Um, one of these questions where uh, it's kind of uh, just my curiosity. Why, as a historian, why do you think history is so important for young people who want to go out in the field of journalism and, and practice? Why, why is history an important aspect for them to learn? Oh, uh, at least two reasons. One is everybody likes a story. 
it's just true. Uh, one of the reasons people turn on the news, listen to the news, read the news, is because there are stories embedded in them. At least with a good reporter, they're going to ask the right questions to develop a, a personality or a story about an event. And that's what drives the readership. In some cases, they want some sensationalism or suspense of some kind. But really what we're doing is putting flesh on bones for readers. And history does that on a, a deeper level, I think. I mean, that's my own personal persuasion is that you have to dig deep in order to put the flesh and bones on people who are no longer with us. And at the same time, you're using the same techniques of asking the questions that elicit answers and fill in the blanks of the who, what, where, when, why, how, so what. Uh, history and journalism are very much interrelated in that respect. Generally, when it comes to reporting, we're talking about stories that have happened within the past 24 hours, or if it's soft news, maybe week or month. You get the same result with history, except it's not within the past 24 hours. Sometimes it's within the past 200 years. Um, those people who preceded us can be just as intriguing, if not more so, than some of the folks alive today. Uh, for a more practical purpose, I suppose, is you have to have context in telling stories for an immediate audience. If you, the writer, do not understand what's preceded the events that you're writing about, it's not going to make much sense to anybody. So we do have to have context and background information. In some cases, that background information doesn't have to go too far back. But if you got a sense of the big picture it's going to show up in the writing. Uh, your writing is going to be much more meaningful and multidimensional too. I try to in impress on students in any class, whether it's history reporting, media criticism, you name it, um, you can't know who you are unless you know where you've been. And at the same time, you can't tell where you're going unless you know where you are. So. If you want a truly multi-dimensional approach to storytelling, yeah, you need to find out some of your past and the past of all of us, our shared past, too, while we're at it. Tell us a little bit about your teaching, Greg. Okay. First of all, what do you teach? And then how has your teaching philosophy shifted in the time that you've been a professor? Um, you've gone from assistant to associate to full. I'm sure you've learned some things along the way. Yeah. How has that informed your teaching? I just about 20 minutes ago left a advanced reporting class. Um, I've been heading sections of that for about five or six years now, and I've learned to like it. I mean, there have been some sketchy semesters, especially during that pandemic business where nobody knew what they were doing. But uh, lately, the advanced reporting classes have been very satisfying in as much as the students have been producing published or publishable work and getting some actual portfolio material that they can show off when it comes time to do a job interview. And all of the lessons and discussions that go into the semester revolve around that, uh, along with 
lectures and PowerPoints and all the rest. For a long time, uh, the history of journalism class was the primary focus of my teaching. Um, not so much anymore, and I'm a little bittersweet about it, but not really. It's okay. Uh, I still offer it online and get some good returns that. I do miss the storytelling that takes place in person. This is a natural part of the class. You can't really do the class without being in front of people and telling stories. That's what drives it. But um, that's done well over the years. Uh, there's a grad version of that class. There's a historiography class that gets offered from time to time at a 700 level. A lot of writing and uh, reporting classes along the way over the past 20 years. And as far as the, well, the biggest change right now is that uh, we're launching this media criticism class online, which is very exciting. I don't want to say too much about it because it's too soon to really comment on what's going to happen, but it does have the potential of having an influence on curriculum depending on how things turn out here. We're going to wait and see, but um, everything's going online. That's one of the big changes, of course, for everybody. When I first started here in 2003, 20 years ago now, I was in the habit of trying to put together a script for every lecture or every appearance in class. Before I'd show up in front of the students, I'd try to have at least an outline prepared so that all of the hour and 15 minutes were accounted for, <laughs> that everybody got exactly what they came to hear. And it works. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. I do some see some people reading from a script, and it sounds very artificial and lame if they try that. But if you're comfortable enough with your own lecturing, it can work. What I've done since then is just take a much more natural approach to things. Yeah, there are some ideas sketched out on the schedule, and there are certain points that we need to address. But instead of being so methodical and tied to the script, see what the students want to talk about. It's a much more effective approach. They respond appropriately. They appreciate it much more than me coming in and trying to ram certain points down their throats. Um, I enjoy it more too. It's uh, just a more relaxed and meaningful experience, I think, for everybody. And I've seen both work, by the way, in my own experiences. This seems like a former lifetime, but um, I remember two different approaches as a student. When I was at the University of Minnesota, there was this professor named Harvey Sarles who specialized in American studies, and he blew my socks off. This guy was amazing. We'd all sit around in chairs in a circle, and he'd just walk through the door at the beginning of class and sit down and start throwing softballs out to the students. There was nothing on the agenda, but somehow by the time the hour and a half had wound up, Everybody was totally engaged in the course materials and discussing and debating and asking questions and all the rest. It was just a very natural approach for him. And on the other extreme was another professor I had who taught Greek and Roman history. He would show up an hour 
before class, and this is before PowerPoints and all the rest, but there's a big blackboard in front of the auditorium where he'd write out by hand in cursive with Roman numerals <laughs> on the blackboard using chalk an entire outline of the class that he was about to deliver, this lecture. That was brilliant, too. I loved it because, I mean, you could actually absorb uh, the material on Greco-Roman history. It was pretty heavy stuff, but you could follow along in writing what he had done. Either approach works, but I think over the years I've gone from that chalkboard outline approach to the much more just, okay, what do you want to talk about approach? And I'm starting to like the latter. <laughs> <laughs> well, Greg, uh, we is there something that we should have asked you in this interview that we haven't asked you? That something that you feel like you'd want to share with our audience? What do I do for fun? What was that? Oh, Dave? yeah. yeah okay, yeah. Dave. <laughs> there you go. I don't have fun. What I have nothing <laughs> to talk about. Um, no, I've got a... A wife and a five-year-old at home, and between mommy and daddy, uh, we got our hands full. Uh, lately, the the primary source of entertainment has been bowling, which is great. I think bowling's a great activity. It's healthy and um, fun as well. Little Alan's learning how to get strikes and spares and everything. As far as my own individual diversions, I know this is going to sound really nerdy, but I like puzzles. I've put together huge, massive puzzles over the span of 20 years here that include almost all works of art. Uh, there's a 13,500-piece Hieronymus Bosch garden of earthly delights up in the loft right now that took two years to complete um there's another Bruegel in my office right now the tower of babel that was five thousand pieces there's a what the last judgment by michelangelo hanging up in the office too yeah on one level it's um just idle stuff but for me it's a wonderful distraction i mean when you've are immersed in puzzles, you can just discard all of the distractions of the day, all of the junk and all of the nonsense. It's almost like doing Zen meditation with puzzles where you get to focus on finding two pieces that belong together. It may take 30 seconds, it may take 30 minutes, but um, that's the only thing that matters is focusing on these pieces that belong. and. It may sound corny, but it's true. It's also sort of a metaphor for doing historical studies or academics in general, just looking for pieces that belong together, right? And when you're done, wow, it's like having a book published. It's like really satisfying to see this final project that's all fallen into place. So, yeah, puzzles are cool, They're, despite their sort of uh, common... Stigma. I like them. I like puzzles a lot. That's pretty cool. I did not know that, Greg. <clears throat> That's really great. We, man, we appreciate having you and sharing these things with us today. This is this is fantastic. Thank you for uh, leading off season two of Inside JMS, Greg. We appreciate you, sir. Okay. Well, thank you. 